0: Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, our weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. We're thrilled to be hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Today I'm joined by Fahad Razak, my good friend and longtime contributor to The Rounds Table. Fahad is a staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital and the David E. Bell Fellow at the Harvard Population and Development Center. Hey, Fahad, how's it going? Amal, great to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you as always. So today, Fahad and I are doing a bit of a cardiovascular-themed episode. Fahad is going to talk about blood pressure lowering based on cardiovascular risk, and then I'm going to be talking about the ARCTIC Interruption Trial, which was looking at dual antiplatelet therapy in patients with coronary stents, and it was a study that was recently published in The Lancet. So before we start, I'm going to make a quick plug and a plea I'm going to ask all of our wonderful, generous, kind, giving listeners. So if you can't tell, I'm buttering you up and asking you to please uh, go online at healthydebate.ca and fill out our very brief survey to give us some feedback on the podcast and how it's going. Our intern is using this to do an evaluation of the program, and it would be very helpful for us to know what you think and how we can make the project better for you. Okay. So let's move on. Fahad, tell me a little bit about blood pressure lowering based on cardiovascular risk. Okay. um, So I'm going
1: to talk about an article that was just published in The Lancet, and it looked at whether blood pressure lowering has different effect based on your baseline level of cardiovascular risk. There's also an accompanying editorial that's pretty informative about this article. So the major finding of this article is that similar to how we currently decide on whether we should use lipid-lowering therapy such as statins, that you can use risk prediction equations for people with cardiovascular disease
0: to decide on how much benefit they get from starting antihypertensive therapy. Interesting. So it sounds intuitive to me, but you know, now that you say it, it's kind of an interesting, interesting question why we don't do that already. So what's the background here? So some of the broader background about uh, the epidemiology of hypertension is that there's a lot
1: of research to show that blood pressure has a continuous relationship with cardiovascular disease and other kinds of vascular disease, and there's no clear inflection point. So there's no clear point where you say everyone on this side should be treated, everyone on that side shouldn't be treated. Um, Also, the benefits of antihypertensive medication has been shown in both hypertensive and nonhypertensive patients at baseline, and we have trial evidence to support that. And finally, we know that the benefits of lowering blood pressure seem to be greatest if patients also have other vascular risk factors, things like dyslipidemia or diabetes. And so this idea of capturing baseline risk, it's been applied well in other areas, most notably in the treatment of dyslipidemia, where we use risk equations to decide when to treat individuals, but it hasn't caught traction in the hypertension world. And so these researchers examined whether it makes sense to use a baseline risk equation to determine the degree of benefit when you start blood pressure-lowering medication. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so how did they conduct this, this study? So what they did is they uh, conducted a meta-analysis of 11 trials that have looked at blood pressure-lowering, a little bit over 50,000 patients. And all of these trials compared blood pressure-lowering versus placebo. So they weren't comparing two different kinds of blood pressure medication, but a range of medications were used, everything from ACE inhibitors to calcium channel blockers. The primary outcome that they looked at was total major cardiovascular events, and these include things like stroke, heart failure, heart attacks, or death from any cardiovascular cause. And in order to create a baseline risk equation, they used common demographic factors, things like age or sex, comorbidities, things like obesity, blood pressure, smoking, diabetes, or cardiovascular disease. But notably, one thing that they didn't have in their risk equation was whether the patient had dyslipidemia or whether they were on statins.
0: Okay, so what were their major findings?
1: So the major findings was they used their risk equation to predict the baseline level of risk of all of the participants, and they broke them down into four major groups. The lowest risk category had a little bit under than 11% risk of having a major cardiovascular event over the next five years, and the highest risk category had more than 20% risk of having a cardiovascular event in the next five years. And what they found is when they looked at the effect of blood pressure medication, there was about a 15% relative risk reduction across all of these risk categories. And what that translates to is a greater absolute risk reduction depending on what your baseline risk is. So, for example, in the highest risk category, those with a baseline risk of more than 20% over the next five years, the number needed to treat was 26 to prevent one major cardiovascular event. In the lowest risk category, the
0: number needed to treat was 71. Okay. So that sounds like a pretty big difference between the two groups. So what's your takeaway from this? What's your application sort of, where, where do we turn this information into clinical practice? Right. So
1: my major takeaway is that the study demonstrates pretty rigorously that categorizing patients by their baseline cardiovascular risk level can help you determine the degree of benefit that they accrue from using blood pressure-lowering medications. Now, the absolute benefit, not surprisingly, is greater, the higher your baseline risk. And so the major implication from the use of these risk equations is that they may help us eventually better determine who will get the maximum benefit from the use of these medications.
0: So, yeah, so I think that that's a good point. I have to say, even in the lowest risk group, I guess the benefit of treatment is not insignificant in the sense that if you you treat 70 people, you prevent one cardiovascular event, right? Uh,
1: Absolutely. So... The the reason that these guidelines or the reason that these risk equations have not entered guidelines yet is that the use of risk equations to determine the degree of benefit from using blood pressure medications has not been widely established prior to this study. So what will undoubtedly follow after this study is a cost effectiveness analysis to determine whether a number needed to treat of seventy, for example, does merit the use of these medications.
0: Yeah, I have to say. So let's be let's be honest about this study and our relative enthusiasm for this. So I actually really thought that this was important and interesting, and I'm kind of excited about it. You seem you're a little less enthused, right? I'm pretty. I'm actually pretty excited by this study, um, and uh, even though my
1: voice may not convey that. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why I'm excited is that the uh, the use of a risk equation to me fundamentally makes sense. It's a logical step in optimizing treatment. We know that patients differ in their risk level by more than just their blood pressure level, and so bringing in other factors to help determine the degree of benefit makes a lot of sense. I think this is a first important step, but certainly it's not ready at this point to apply to clinical practice.
0: Okay, so I was trying to sort of develop a little antagonism here, but clearly I failed, (laughs) Uh, and we both sort of come down on the same side that, one, I guess hypertension is such a prevalent and important public health problem that improving our science and our approach to treating it makes a lot of sense. And I think the more we can get to a, a better risk assessment for individual patients would really help people make individual decisions, especially because effects of hypertension are often downstream, whereas the costs of actually taking medication, both financial and otherwise, are you know much more immediate, right? So people are unlikely to... If your risk is low there may be a compelling reason or people may choose not to be treated.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think this could help with some of the more nuanced decisions about using blood pressure medication. But what's notable from these trials is that actually there's a minimal representation of people with mild hypertension and otherwise low risk. So the, the very category where you would hope for some additional information to make decisions This risk equation doesn't give you a lot of information about these patients, and the trial data doesn't have patients that represent that category. And so it's actually a little bit cloudy to me how this is going to impact clinical practice, even if it's developed further, because patients who have very high baseline levels of blood pressure are put on treatment anyway, and this risk equation would tell you to put them on treatment. But it's the patients that are at uh, low risk and still have mildly elevated blood pressure that sometimes it can be difficult to determine what to do, and this equation doesn't guide us.
0: Okay. So maybe this is really, I think, a step in the right direction, but it sounds like there are a few steps before this makes it to tangible clinical practice into guidelines. Would you say that's probably accurate? What do you think are the next steps?
1: I, I think so. And I, I think that this also raises, to me, kind of a uh, important uh, example of how Two very similar areas can develop in very different ways. And what I mean is that the use of risk equations in determining who should be put on a statin, for example, is really well established. And yet you have this parallel cardiac risk factor of hypertension, where for some reason there isn't a risk equation. We just make decisions based on what people's blood pressure levels are. And this risk equation, at the very least, shows that. Using a baseline risk approach makes sense. So it's interesting from a research point of view, and it has a lot of clinical implications about why we treat these two very similar cardiac risk factors so very differently when we make clinical decisions.
0: Yeah, I think that's like a fascinating intellectual history question of how did these two fields evolve so differently when they're so related? Something I'd love to actually look into more. I I I don't know if you have any insight off the top of your head or. I don't. And it's a really interesting question. And the editorial that accompanied
1: this article actually didn't explore why, but they hinted to the fact that there has been pushback in the hypertension community to use of a risk equation. And I guess the bigger question is why and something
0: that I don't know at this point. Agree. Okay, why don't you wrap up, Fahad, and tell us what uh, the major takeaway points from this study are. So these results make a compelling argument
1: that assessing baseline risk is useful when determining the degree of benefit that individuals will have from starting medications for their high blood pressure. However,
0: the results are not ready to apply to clinical practice. You sound like Travis. Okay. <laughs> wait Wait till my good stuff. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Vahad. Let's move on. So the study I want to talk about is called Arctic Interruption. And it was a study about dual antiplatelet therapy And this study showed that there was no benefit to continuing dual antiplatelet therapy beyond 12 months in patients who have drug-eluting stents. So Amal, clearly uh, the use of antiplatelets in people with stents
1: is a very important clinical question. A lot of our patients have stents. What was the background before they did this trial?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the placement of coronary stents really is associated with two major complications. The first is the development of a blood clot in the stent, in stent thrombosis, and the second is the reaccumulation of atherosclerosis around and in and around the stent, or stent restenosis. And the use of antiplatelet therapy is our major way of dealing with uh, those complications. The recommended duration of dual antiplatelet therapy for drug-eluting stents specifically is between 6 and 12 months. And the recommended duration for treatment is mixed, and what's really unknown is whether there is benefit to continuing the dual antiplatelet therapy beyond those 12 months. And that's the question that these authors were trying to address. So how did they go about testing this question? Yeah, so this is actually a bit of an opportunistic study. It's an extension randomized control trial. So, So there was an original trial called the ARCTIC study that looked at titrating doses of antiplatelet therapy and... The main point here is that in that trial, there were 2,400 patients who took antiplatelet drugs for 12 months. So this trial took that study population and re-randomized the eligible patients to either continue those antiplatelet therapies for an additional 6 to 18 months or to stop antiplatelet therapy. Okay. Uh, So what were the major findings from this? They enrolled about 1,200 patients. So that's about half of the original study group and randomized them to either continuing the antiplatelet or stopping it. And what they found was no difference between the groups in terms of their primary outcome, which was a combined endpoint that included all-cause mortality and cardiovascular events. They found that in the follow-up period, about 1% died in both groups. 1% of patients had an acute MI in both groups. 1% of patients required urgent revascularization in both groups. 1% had stent thrombosis in both groups, and 1% had stroke. Sounds like a pretty compelling study to say no difference. That is as good as it gets. (laughs) The the one difference that they did find was increased bleeding in the group that continued the dual antiplatelet therapy. So there was about 1% rate of bleeding in the continuation group versus less than 0.5% in the group that did not continue the antiplatelet. Okay, so what are your main takeaways based on this evidence? So the main takeaway point really seems to be that there's no apparent benefit to continuing dual antiplatelet therapy beyond 12 months, and there may be a small amount of harm.
1: Okay, so that seems to be the clear takeaway from this study, but wasn't there another recent trial that showed pretty different results looking at almost an identical question
0: I kind of hate you for knowing medical literature so well. Uh, Yes, you're correct. So there was recently a a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at a very similar question, and it was the dual antiplatelet therapy trial, the DAPT study. So in that study, they looked at about 10,000 patients. Again, similarly, randomly assigned them to continuing antiplatelet therapy beyond the 12 months. Uh, and they looked at 18 months, an 18-month extension. In that study, they found that there was reduced heart attacks in the long-term antiplatelet group, but uh, there was overall increased mortality and increased bleeding in the long-term antiplatelet group. Now, the one caveat from that study is that they think that the increased mortality may have been because of a and unlucky imbalance in the pre-existing cancer risk between the two groups at the time of randomization. But the major point is that from that other paper, the evidence is still not compelling that dual antiplatelet therapy is particularly beneficial uh, beyond the 12 months.
1: But I would say in defense of the other paper that that trial was developed to answer this question, correct?
0: Correct. Whereas
1: the trial that you just presented, the Arctic trial was a re-randomization of a pre-existing trial that was designed for a separate question. Absolutely. And so there must have been some implication for their power to detect a difference, or were there any further losses at the time of re-randomization?
0: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, one of the major things, as I mentioned, is that they only re-randomized about 50% of their original study population, and there were some differences in the groups. So the major reason that they were unable to randomize patients was a physician decision that the patients were not eligible for re-randomization. And it's not made very explicit in the paper what exactly were the grounds of that physician decision. A part of it may have been that they had a contraindication to the dual antiplatelet therapy. They did indicate that also there was a group of patients in whom they, for example, had a new stent placed, and so they had an absolute indication to continue dual antiplatelet therapy and therefore were excluded. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there were some differences between the re-randomized group and the original study population. So the excluded patients had higher risk, basically. They had more diabetes, more peripheral artery disease. So you're absolutely right that the Lancet Arctic Interruption paper is limited in some ways. There are also limitations to the New England Journal paper, People have argued that. So, the New England Journal DAPT study was an industry funded trial in which the sponsor was actively involved in the design and analysis and writing of the study, which is different from the uh, Arctic interruption in which the funder had no involvement.
1: I have to say, though, in the wide world of cardiac trials, trials sponsored by industry are pretty much the standard. And so, you can't use that as a standalone argument against the validity of a trial. You can talk about Methodology, you can talk about other problems with the way that the style uh, that the trial was run. But industry sponsored, unfortunately, in this area I don't think is enough of a critique.
0: Yeah, I don't even think that it's that's an unfortunate thing. I think that's a very valid point. Um and so I think without getting into too much of the details of the way the DAPT trial was run, I think our main argument here uh should be that neither trial provides really compelling indication for uh pr- continuing dual antiplatelet therapy beyond the 12 months. So I think this evidence leaves us in a place where it's not entirely clear that there's benefit to continuing the dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, and so we're not entirely left knowing what to do beyond that. I think it's, it points to an
1: area where we actually need a lot of guidance. This is one of the most commonly encountered problems on the medical consult service. I imagine a lot of primary care physicians have to advise on this. This is a problem that surgeons encounter when they have to decide to take someone off antiplatelet in order to do a procedure.
0: So a really important question, and I hope we get better evidence soon about what to do. Totally agree. So let me wrap up and say that the major takeaway point of the Arctic interruption study is that there is no apparent benefit to continuing dual antiplatelet therapy beyond 12 months. And the major takeaway point of the dual antiplatelet trial is that dual antiplatelet therapy did reduce the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events but was associated with an increased risk of bleeding and may have been associated with an overall increased risk of mortality. Okay, let's move on to our Good Stuff segment. So, Fahad, are you going to Travis me out of the water with this one?
1: I am. I miss Travis. I miss Travis. So, I'm talking about an article from Science Translational Medicine, otherwise known as Travis's favorite journal. <laughs> and, uh, and it asked a really actually interesting and important question, and, and the question is something that we all encounter again, often on the medical consult service or for our surgeon colleagues, is why do some people have such rapid and good overall great recovery from a surgery, whereas other people have very poor recovery, have a lot of pain, have low energy levels? And people have examined this question before, and they found that conventional clinical risk factors, things like obesity or comorbidity, actually don't predict very much of the variation that occurs post-operation. And so this very small study looked at uh, 32 people who had a hip replacement, and these participants were relatively healthy at baseline. And what they did is they took the blood of these patients prior to the surgery, and the patients then had their hip replacement. They took the blood again after their surgery, and they looked for signs of inflammation. And specifically, they used something called a mass cytometer, relatively new research tool, but something very similar to a mass mass spectrometer. And they looked at all the different proteins that changed and they found that just three blood proteins related to inflammation seemed to predict about 50% of the overall variation in the recovery that people had after surgery. So things like whether they were able to walk again, the degree of pain that they had and the difference that these things, that these three proteins could predict ranged from as fast a recovery as 10 to 12 days to a slow recovery as more than 30 days. So an enormous, enormous range of prediction So I think a really intriguing and potentially important study, there's a great New York Times article about it as well, and they quote uh, University of Toronto's TACMAC, talking about how important this study is and the kind of questions
0: it opens for the future. That is super interesting. All right, friend, that was good. I appreciated it. Um, For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first or rare time, Travis is one of our frequent contributors For those of you who are familiar, you will be well aware of his work. That's right. He's a fanboy. He's a fanboy of science science translational medicine. Teen heartthrob? Okay. (laughs) So my Good Stuff segment is breaking my own cardinal rule not to do New York Times articles in the Good Stuff segment, which is an article entitled, Why Are So Few Blockbuster Drugs Invented Today? So this is an article really pointing to the fact that there may be a a gap in pharmaceutical innovation. They quote a statistic. So Fahad, do you know what Moore's law is? I do
1: indeed, being a former engineer. So Moore's law is the idea proposed by Gordon Moore that computing power will double roughly every two years.
0: Did you really need to say his first name just to prove that you're an engineer? I was
1: an engineer. I will tap my ring against the <laughs> mic now.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. So Gordon Moore said that there's something called rooms law, which is the opposite of Moore's Law, which says that since 1950, the number of new drugs approved has fallen by half every nine years, meaning that since 1950, there's been an 80-fold reduction in the number of new drugs approved, which seems pretty striking. And so this article argues that the rise of genomics is one of the explanations for that and points to the fact that highly targeted disease therapies, require massive investments, uh, and often don't necessarily prove to be fruitful. And when they are fruitful, may only help diseases that affect a small proportion of patients. And so this article cites that as one of the potentially many causes as to why dr- blockbuster drugs are not being as frequently produced these days.
1: I think I would also say, though, that you know the 1950s or, let's say, a half century ago, was a time when there was a lot of low-hanging fruit for major trials. And trials infrastructure and the kind of questions that we've tested has rapidly progressed over the last 50 years. And I think the low-hanging fruit don't really exist anymore. We're going after smaller and smaller effect sizes, rarer and rarer conditions.
0: Totally agree. A pleasure to do this with you as always. Great to do this and all. It's been fun. Okay, talk to you again soon. Take care. And this is just a reminder that You can find all of the links we discussed online at healthydebate.ca, and please, please fill out our survey at healthydebate.ca slash roundstablesurvey. Thanks very much.